Now, this may seem surprising to you that our text for today is from the book of Leviticus. Quite frankly, so am I. But as I was going through my Bible reading plan this year, when I came to Leviticus, I found myself having a new sense of appreciation for it. I'm quite sure that many of us embarked each new year with the desire to read through the Bible in a calendar year. As is so often the case, we start off excited and motivated to complete this task. Reading through Genesis is great. There's a sense of newness, as it is the first book, and there are many stories there that are familiar to us. As we come next to Exodus, the narratives are compelling, each chapter building upon the next. In these two books, Genesis and Exodus, these characters and events grab our attention, and we see the power of our awesome God on display as well as being introduced to many of the doctrines that we will see throughout the Bible. But then we come to the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. 27 chapters of rules and regulations that seem very tedious and certainly unfamiliar to us. And it is at this point that many well-intentioned Bible reading plans fall off. That is why Leviticus has been called the most neglected of all of the neglected biblical books. But I think this is to our detriment. As we know through our recent studies of 2 Timothy with Pastor George, when we reach chapter 3, verse 16, we see that it clearly states, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. That means all 66 inspired books of the Bible are beneficial to us. 39 of the Old Testament, 27 of the New. Yes, even the book of Leviticus. Listen to what the 20th century pastor W.A. Criswell had to say about it. He said, Leviticus is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. Without an understanding of the principles of atonement and holiness found in Leviticus, much of the New Testament has no foundation to which to rest. To say that Leviticus is one of the most New Testament books of the Old Testament would hardly be an exaggeration, for it foreshadows the person and work of Christ in a most remarkable and elucidating manner. And I would agree with him. But before we get into our text, we must lay down some groundwork so as to provide for us context. First, we'll quickly look at the entire book of Leviticus as a whole, and then specifically give a brief overview to chapters 8 and 9, which leads us into which the bulk of the message will be today of chapter 10. Now, the book of Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament and one of the five books that is known as the Torah or Pentateuch. The book is written by Moses, and if you were to summarize the theme and the purpose of the book, there perhaps is no better place than verse uh, twenty twenty six, where God says, in speaking to the nation of Israel, So you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have singled you out from the peoples to be mine. This theme of holiness is found throughout Leviticus. In fact, the word holy is found 91 times within the 27 chapters, more than any other Old Testament book. Leviticus is also quoted or referenced over 100 times in the New Testament, 
So clearly it has tremendous importance for us. Now if you've been a part of this church for any extended period of time, you know that we will often speak about holiness. It is essential to growth in the Christian life, and it is also commanded of us. The Hebrew word for holy that is used means that which is set apart or marked off, that which is different. In the English, our word for holy means to be whole or to be healthy, and it can have an inner or an outer component to it. The problem that the Israelites in the Old Testament had, and that we do as well, is that we are not inherently holy. We are sinful. Yet God requires that his people come and worship him. So how is that possible for us to do? As always, the answer to every problem is not found within inside of us. Rather, it is made possible and is provided to us from God himself. So in many ways, the book of Leviticus answers the question, how can an unholy people approach to worship a holy God? Now, as a side note here, we understand that worship is so vital and important to the Christian. It is what we do. Our lives are to be marked by it. Every time we gather together corporately, right, this is what we do. And God places a high premium on worship. And I think it's interesting to know whether if you do a study of the scriptures, you'll find that when we're talking about the topic of worship, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of verses that God gives to his people on various specifications on what to do in worship. We see it in the early books, certainly of the Old Testament and the Pentateuch, where we see in Leviticus and we see in Exodus and all of these books where God is giving very, very detailed instructions to his people on how to worship him. Compare that now to the entire creation account, which is only found in one chapter of the Bible, and that's it, only however many verses dedicated to that. So whereas we as people sometimes get so focused on, and I think there is a great reason to be when we see in the creation evolution debate that goes on, and we see great ministries like Answers in Genesis or Creation.com where we want to see how science, the science and, and the biblical record could come together, and I, I believe that it clearly does. But from God's perspective, as far as he's concerned, he spoke it into existence, it's in existence, creation was done on his part, and he doesn't give us more details. Now that's left for us to, to, to figure out, and he gives us certainly areas and opportunities to do that. But when it comes to worship, he's very, very specific, and he was in the Old Testament. You see that his high priority is on that. But back to the question of how can an unholy people worship a holy God? Leviticus explained this throughout the 27 chapters. In chapters 1 to 7, we see five types of offerings that the people were required to bring for various reasons. There was a burnt offering, grain, peace, sin, and guilt. In verses 8 to 10, we see the institution of the priesthood, men who were called and set apart to be mediators for the people, and one of their responsibilities was offering the proper sacrifices. In chapters 11 to 16, we have various rules for different types of uncleanness that could hinder worship. And specifically in chapter 16, we have the description of the Day of Atonement, which would be the holiest and most important day each year for the nation of Israel, as the high priest would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. Later on in chapter 17 to 27, we see guidelines that are given for practical holiness as it pertains to food, sexual behaviors, how to interact with one another, 
various types of capital crimes, and the required religious festivals that the people were to keep. All in all, Leviticus provides for us a look at how truly incomparable God is, and it sets the stage for even greater work that will be done later on through his son, Jesus Christ. I want to look quickly at Leviticus 8 and 9, as I said, because that's a preparation for our text. In chapter 8 of Leviticus, Leviticus, we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons to the holy priesthood. The priests were from the tribe of Levi, and they were to be the primary mediators between God and man. They were to serve in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, and they were to offer the sacrifices that were required by the Mosaic law. We see the priesthood mentioned earlier in the Bible in Exodus 24, 28, 29, but in Leviticus 8, the actual consecration ceremony takes place. And the ceremony itself is quite elaborate, very specific, and it is done publicly in front of the entire congregation. And as I said, it was done given in fine detail as to what was going to occur. And upon its conclusion, Aaron and his sons now begin to minister by presenting the offerings. And as we conclude chapter 9, we see no doubt one of the great moments in the history of Israel, when after having offered the sin, burnt, and peace offerings, we're told in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire went out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face downward. This was a tremendous moment in the history of Israel. As the priesthood was now instituted, as the offerings were given, done according to God's prescribed standards, and God accepted the offering. And as is so often the case, when confronted with the holy God, the people are not only in awe, but also in fear. But unfortunately as is so often the case in the scriptures, these moments of great joy are ruined by the sinful actions of men. So that leads us to our text for this morning. And we begin Leviticus chapter 10 by looking at verses 1 and 2. In verse 1 we're told, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on the fire and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We see here a tragedy brought about by the sins of two men, Nadab and Abihu. These men were the two oldest of Aaron's four sons. They had been selected by God to serve as priests to the Lord. This was a tremendous calling, one with privilege and great responsibility. Yet even after having been instructed about the solemn nature of their duties, these men quickly decide that they will pursue their own agenda and not the will of God. Now at first glance, it may appear to the casual reader that this sin doesn't seem like such a big deal and that God is overreacting. And I would say that therein lies the great problem that has affected man throughout history, and especially in today's age, the minimalization of sin. Treating sin as if it is no big deal, instead of seeing sin for what it truly is, a vile and an offense to a holy God. 
But I think we need to look specifically at what Nadab and Abihu did in order to understand how wrong it was. Now, some of, that, some of this involves speculation on our part because we're not clearly told within this verse. But I think some of the things that you can glean from looking at other portions of the scripture perhaps can give us an idea of some of the things that perhaps went wrong. I think one of the things that we see is what they did wrong is that they assumed for a role for themselves that was not theirs. Now, these two men were priests, but they were not the high priest. Only Aaron, their father, was at this particular moment. And we look at Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 to 10, we see some specific instructions that are given to Aaron that he was to burn incense on the altar of incense every morning. And then later, obviously, he was going to do things pertaining to the Holy of Holy, in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But it appears that these men, these two sons now, are presenting incense in the, in the tabernacle that was not their calling to do. It was meant for their father. Secondly, we see that Nadab and Abihu used their own respective fire pans, instead perhaps of the authorized censer that their father had. And their father's authorized censer also had been anointed with a special oil. So it appears as though that they're using the wrong tool as well. Also, it looks, and as we told, that they offered strange fire or unauthorized fire that the Lord had not commanded. Back to Exodus 37 and 10, it was clear that they were not allowed to do that. And we also see a little bit later on in Leviticus 16.12 that the incense that was to be burned on was, from, was supposed to be from coals that were taken from the brazen altar. And it appears here, perhaps, again, speculation, but it appears perhaps that these men were bringing their own fire into the tabernacle. And then lastly, it, it, again, it may, we don't know for sure, perhaps as though they were also acting in the wrong authority and at the wrong time because maybe they tried to perform these activities by entering into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, which was only reserved for, again, the high priest, and it was only to be done on the Day of Atonement, which is once a year. Obviously, there is a lot to speculate about their behavior, and when we come to verse 8, we're going to see another possibility for their reasons of their sinful actions. But what is clear, what is clear to us here, is that they acted in disobedience, despite having been given a great responsibility. They did not show the proper reverence for the Lord, and they suffered for it. As we saw in verse 2, that told us, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Whereas fire had come from the Lord in chapter 9, 24, to symbolize the acceptance of the offerings, here fire comes from the Lord in judgment. And again, people may ask, was this not too harsh? Could God have not given them a second chance? Our answer is found in verse 3. Where we're told, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. It cannot be emphasized enough. God is holy and must be treated and regarded as such. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that his eyes are too pure to look at evil. And in 1 Timothy 6.16, we're told that he dwells in unapproachable light. We must revere him for all that he is because he is worthy. And no sin is considered too small in his sight, especially by those who have been given great insight and high positions in his service, as these two men were. Keep in mind, though, that God is extremely merciful. It may sound strange to us, and I know it sounds strange when you're talking to people who are not Christian, 
But the reality is that every person walking this earth really has no business being alive. God would be completely just to strike us down every single time that we sin. And as I look around the room, and as I know of the people in my life, and I know my own self, I know that that sin in my life, there has been a lot of it. And God would have been completely just to strike me down every single time. That's how serious sin is. That's why when people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? You hear that all the time. The question is false. The premise is false. The reality is it should be is why do good things happen to all of us who are bad? That's the real question that needs to be asked. But we understand while God is a God of mercy, there are times in the scriptures where he has to act in order to set a precedent. There are several examples of this, and they are typically done when there is an inauguration of a new time in God's plan for his people. In Joshua chapter 7, we see the sin of a man named Achan. In the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel, who were in a covenant with the Lord, were embarking into the promised land to take possession of it. This was a new chapter in Israel's history, and it involved a series of battles against the ungodly and pagan nations that were occupying the land at the time. We know that Israel came out in Exodus from the land of Egypt, and then for 40 years they're wandering around in the wilderness, being in the wilderness for 40 years because of the sin that they had committed when they consistently sinned against God. But now here we are in the cusp of them entering into the promised land as we come into Joshua. Moses has passed away. Joshua is the new leader of the people taking him in there, and he's to be their commander leading them into the battles. In chapter 6, we see the Israelites attack and destroy the city of Jericho under the direction of the Lord. And in this chapter, the Lord had commanded them, particularly in verse 17 and 19 of chapter 6, that no one was to take any of the spoils of victory, lest they make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Everything was to be devoted to destruction, with the exception of Rahab and her household, Rahab being the woman who helped the spies who come into the land and had aided them in the mission. But from God's perspective, the city of Jericho, everything was to be destroyed because they were an evil and wicked people, and everything was to be destroyed. In other instances, the land of Israel, when they would go into battle, they had, they had opportunities perhaps to take some of the spoils of war, that you would have the gold and the livestock and whatnot, but not in this particular instant in this city. This city was so wicked, the city was almost representative of all the wickedness of that, so that they were told to destroy it completely. God was clear about this, and it was effectively communicated to the people. Unfortunately, though, a man by the name of Achan disobeys the order, and he takes for himself a cloak and some gold and silver, and he hides it in his tent. He allows his temptation to get the best of him. And he directly disobeys God and he takes this stuff for himself. And initially it appears as though he may get away with it. But as Numbers 32, 23 tells us, be sure that your sin will find you out. It may, and that's true for all of us. Our sin may find us out in the moment. Sometimes we get caught in the moment. Sometimes it might take some time. It might take years. But eventually all of our sin eventually finds us out. And in this case, the sin is made known in the next chapter, Joshua chapter 7. After the nation is subsequently defeated in the next city that they try to attack, Ai. And this comes, as no, it comes to a shock to them all. Here they are in the, after having a great victory at the Battle of Jericho, this incredible city with these high walls. 
that as they marched around the city and the walls eventually fell down and the soldiers went in to do what they did, now here they are to almost a small and insignificant town of Ai, and they're actually defeated. And they're shocked. And we see the reason why, because of Achan's sin. And again, while seemingly minor on the surface, it was quite serious because as a member of the nation of Israel, he had caused a transgression to be made against God's covenant. He was part of God's covenant people, and he had broken that covenant, and here was the consequences of it. And I think that's important for us to understand when we think about sin, is that sin ultimately is always against God. God is always the offended party in every sin that we commit. But sin is not committed in a vacuum. The sins that we commit always are going to affect someone else. We may not know it, but they do in some form or fashion. Even the smallest of lies sometimes has a power to affect other people. And in this case, that's what's happening here. He was breaking the the commandment, the command that God had given him, and now the entire nation of Israel had to suffer for it, where they lost the initial battle of Ai, where soldiers were killed because of this man's sin. So God had to act in order to set a precedent here as well. So for this, it was commanded that he and his family, who no doubt probably knew exactly what it is that he had done and were complicit in it, were told and commanded to be stoned to death, as they were. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, we see another situation where God takes direct and immediate action against sin. Most of us are probably familiar with this. Again, this is at a time when the church was in its infancy stages and the standard was being set. We have a husband and a wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And they sell a field and they give some of the proceeds to the church. Yet they lie and say that they had given all of the proceeds to them. And the Apostle Peter, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, is empowered to tell that they are lying. And the couple both end up falling over dead. In this instance, again, God's judgment is quick and it is severe. Now, if any of us were struck dead every time we lied, that would be a real problem for us. But we understand and know here that this was God was setting the standard for the church because the people were afraid from this and this was going to help to keep the people to be holy. Their sin wasn't the fact that they didn't give all of the proceeds to the church. Their sin was is that they were allowed to do whatever, with their money whatever they wanted to. They weren't, God wasn't requiring them to sell their property and give everything to the church. But what they did is they tried to pretend as if they gave more than they really did. To look better, it was a prideful thing, action on their part. And that lie is the reason why they were judged. So we keep coming back to this point of the seriousness of sin. God's perfect holiness and his glory is at stake. And as we said, all sin committed against him is cosmic treason. Think of the old days when the pirates would sail the seas and they would commit a whole host of crimes. It would be rape and murder and theft and robbery and all of these different things that they would do. But if they were eventually caught, the number one crime that they would be charged with was not the murder or the rape and the theft and whatnot. It was treason, treason against the crown. And that is what we look at when we think upon sin, is that all of the sins that we commit, ultimately at the end of the day, is cosmic treason against the crown of the Lord. Everything else for these men and everything else really falls secondary. But notice we see at the end of verse 3 where it says, So Aaron therefore kept silent. 
Aaron seems to understand that his sons had committed a serious offense and that they deserved judgment. He doesn't question what had occurred. And how different is this from the world we live in where God is always being challenged and questioned for his actions, where we like to stand in judgment of God, when the reality is we have no business to do so. In verses 4 to 7, we see the aftermath of this incident. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to an area outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to an area outside the camp, just as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you do not die. And he does not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the entire house of Israel, shall weep for the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Neither Aaron nor his two surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, were able to retrieve the bodies of their brother or their son. They were consecrated priests and they were not allowed to handle dead bodies, even the closest of relatives here. Instead, these two other men, Mishael and Elzaphan, other family members, distant cousins, are given the task to do so. But interestingly enough, we're told that they were carried away while still in their tunics. So evidently, the tunics did not burn up in the fire. A clear evidence that this was a supernatural event. What comes next in the instruction given by Moses is perhaps the most difficult. Aaron and his sons are told that they are not to mourn the loss. In the case of Aaron, of, their son, of his sons, and for, the brother, for Eleazar and Ithamar, not to mourn the loss of their brothers. How hard must that have been? Yet it was necessary because the glory of God was at stake. If Aaron and his sons were to mourn their death, then the implication to the entire congregation would be that God was wrong in his judgment. This could not be, especially for a priest who was to serve in the special role as intermediary. And I think what we see here is a principle that is later taught by Jesus in Matthew 10, 37, when he says, The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. While we do and we are supposed to have strong love and affection for our earthly families, we do. We love our earthly families. We cherish them. We we do everything for them. We sacrifice. We do so much for them. But ultimately, our strongest love and devotion needs to be directed towards the Lord. For that is proper and that is right. The section of our text for this morning concludes in verses 8 to 11. We are told, the Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you do not die. It is a permanent statute throughout your generations, and to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Notice a few things here. First, God speaks directly to Aaron. Only one of three occasions that this happens, 
no doubt to drive home the point that he was to make. He's not speaking to Moses to tell Aaron. He's speaking directly to Aaron. But also see, too, God's gracious nature on display here. Sometimes it gets overlooked. But God doesn't start over. He doesn't start over and say, well, you know what, Aaron, you and your sons, you blew it. You're not allowed to do this anymore. I'm starting over again, and I'm going to find a new high priest. I'm going to find new, new people to serve in the priesthood. He doesn't do that. Aaron is allowed to continue in his role as the high priest, and his two sons are to serve as priests as well. So that doesn't change. God is gracious enough to Aaron. And even if you start to think about Aaron, he might start at one point wondering to himself, his sons were brought unto judgment for what they did, yet he was spared earlier on when he had presented the golden calf to the people in violation. Now, he wasn't the high priest yet, but nonetheless, he understood, too, that he has some, a track record of going against the Lord. And yet God is still gracious to him and allows him to be able to still keep this high position. Secondly, we see that the Lord tells Aaron that he and his sons must abstain from alcohol before entering the tent of meeting. Now, we can't be completely certain, but it would seem logical, and as many theologians surmise, that the reason for this may have been that Nadab and Abihu had been drunk when they entered the tabernacle in order to present their fire. We already looked at some of the possible reasons for their, of their wrongdoings, but being drunk with alcohol while performing their priestly task would be, certainly be a serious crime. It speaks to a complete lack of reverence for the Lord and for their solemn duties. Listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. Drunkenness is bad in any, but it is especially scandalous and pernicious in ministers, who of all men ought to have the clearest heads and the cleanest hearts. The next thing we see in these verses, and particularly in verse 10 and 11, is the Lord is giving to Aaron the additional responsibilities of the priesthood. While the presentation of the offerings for the sins of the people was to be done, the priests were also responsible to know the difference between the holy and profane, and the clean and the unclean. And again, this all drives home the theme of this book on how we are to properly worship God. But it wasn't just for them to know. It was also certainly their responsibility to know, but they had to teach these things to the people of Israel. And as you can see, the priesthood was indeed a high calling, and just as it is today for pastors in local churches who are called to come and not only know the word of God, but to be able to be presented and to teach it to the people. I want to finish the last part of the message with a few key points that I think we could take away from this text for our own application And the first has to do with worship. This chapter makes it clear that God requires us to worship him in a manner that is appropriate and also from the heart. What classifies today as modern day worship, in many instances, is not true worship at all. There is a lot of consumer mentality within churches that is more concerned with attracting crowds by providing entertainment and meeting the felt needs of the people. This is done through rock concert style environments, and a theatric feel where the pastor and the musicians are more about performance than they are about actually preaching truth. The messages are often man-centered pep talks, with a few Bible verses added in order to help individuals feel better about themselves or to just help them get through until the next week. I know of some churches that remove Bibles from the pews so as to not offend anyone that would be attending. There's also a YouTube video that was going on some time ago where I hate to call it a church, but there was a place where they had 
in the beginning of the service, they had people dressed as the stormtroopers from Star Wars come up onto the platform and they were doing a dance. And in order to get the people excited or whatever it was or trying to appeal to people, whatever, whatever it is that was being done, uh, clearly it was wrong. It was wrong and in trying to attract people by using the world's methodology. And I think we all understand that this cannot be. Worship is all about God. God is to be the main focus, and the formula for worship, while seemingly outdated to our culture, is not only a tried and true method, it is biblical. But what are we specifically talking about? When we come to worship, what do we mean? For our corporate gatherings, it involves prayer, scripture reading, biblical-based sermons taken from the Word of God, as we do once a month, participation in the Lord's table, and singing of songs that give praise and glory to God, not man. I'm so thankful each week that when we come and we sing, and the songs that we sing before service that Mark picks out, he's always picking songs that highlight and magnify God. The messages that we preach are to have an evangelistic component, but ultimately the purpose is to feed the true believers, to feed the sheep of God. All of this, though, must be done from the heart, and in a reverent manner. But ultimately, worship is not just what we do on Sundays. It is to be our lifestyle. And that, if it's our lifestyle, leads to increased holiness, which is our second point. In this chapter, holiness is what was lacking from Nadab and Abihu. God calls his people to be holy. And this is in the standard in both the Old and the New Testaments. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, we are told, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter here in the New Testament is quoting Leviticus 11.44 and Leviticus 19.2. So we see the emphasis on holiness is not in, just in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. And by God's grace, we are to increase in holiness during our lives. As per the definition, that means that we are to be set apart, to be noticeably different from those around us in the way that we think and the way that we act. We're never going to achieve perfection in this world. That's not going to happen. So I don't want to disappoint anybody. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we are not to pursue growth. Being a Christian, as I said, is to be our lifestyle. It's a constant renewing of our minds, as per Romans 12, 1 and 2. It is a constant putting off of the old and putting on the new, per Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. And similar, though, to what we see in a lot of modern churches, and perhaps because of being, what is being taught or not taught from the pulpits, there are a lot of professing believers that do not understand the importance of holiness. I remember several years ago there was a famous professional athlete who professes to be a Christian, and he put something on his Twitter of how he enjoyed a popular movie at the time that was nothing short of pornographic. And if he went on his Twitter page, one of the first things he has in his little biography section, he would have Bible verses. And yet here he was tweeting about things that a Christian should have no business viewing. And we see a lot of that. We see a lot of that where sometimes the language, not necessarily even vulgar language, sometimes the language and the joking and, 
and the things that we consume ourselves with is just no real different than what the world is going to do. And that is not going to increase our holiness. It's going to produce the opposite result. And not only is it going to produce the opposite result as far as us being you know, less holy, it also produces what happens in a lot of people's lives with anxiety and depression and a whole host of different things. Our anxiety and depression levels in this country are at an all-time level. And a lot of it, it has to do with the things that we consume because we're not capable of handling and processing a lot of that stuff. And that affects us more than we understand and more than we know. Instead, what we should do is we should follow the command of Philippians 4.8. That should be our pursuit. I love this verse. In fact, I preached on this one time several years ago, this verse alone. I think it's a fantastic verse, and I think it's something that we should all commit to our own memories and certainly something that we should follow. Apostle Paul, speaking to the church of Philippi, says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think at this point, though, it's important for us to mention that growth and holiness can only happen if a person has first come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is where the journey begins, when by God's grace a person repents of their sins and places their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are saved by our faith, not by our works. Our holiness then comes about as the Holy Spirit works in and through us. So for those of us listening today, perhaps you're listening or, uh, through live stream or maybe you'll listen to this message at some other point or perhaps anyone that is here in this room today. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your forgiveness of sins, I plead that you today would be the day that you would do so. We're not bringing anything to the table. We're not bringing our works. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our good deeds. We don't have a cachet of things that we're bringing. The only thing that, quite frankly, we bring is our sin. And we need someone to pay for that sin. And we're so thankful that God provided a way. He didn't have to. He didn't have to provide a way. But he did provide a way, and that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We place our faith and trust in him and him alone, and we can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. And then we can see as we chart and path towards holiness. The last point, though, for us to make today is one that should be of great encouragement to us. We saw today in our text the failings of two men who were called to be priests. Nadab and Abihu, though, would not be the only ones that would fail. Their father Aaron would fail as a high priest, as would countless others throughout the years. Sad to say, even today, there are many pastors and pulpits that will fail. Quite frankly, everyone will fail at some point or another. If you place your faith and hope and trust in a, in a pastor or any man on this earth, then you're really in trouble. You shouldn't. We're blessed here at this church that our pastor is a phenomenal, phenomenal mm-hmm. pastor. Probably one of the best that I've ever come across. His talk matches his walk and his walk matches his talk. All of that. But yet he too is a fallible man. But even the best of men fall short, and that's why in the Old Testament the priest was required to make an offering for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. But there is one who did not fail. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate and perfect high priest. Jesus offered himself as the sinless, spotless son of God on the cross at Calvary to satisfy the demands of the law. Hebrews 7, 26, 26 to 27 tells us, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, 
who has no daily need like those high priests who offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all time when he offered up himself. Jesus also had to make that sacrifice once, and by doing so, he was able to secure salvation for the people of God. Hebrews 9.12 tells us, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. When Christ is on the cross and he says, it is finished, it was indeed finished. Everything was done. The Old Testament sacrificial system ended. It was no longer necessary because it was complete. As you can see, though, the book of Hebrews has much to say on Jesus as high priest. And it is a great study to compare Leviticus to Hebrews because we clearly see that Leviticus is foundational to God's plan of salvation. But now in the new covenant that was inaugurated with Jesus' death and resurrection, as I just said, that old sacrificial system that is represented to us in Leviticus is no longer in effect. It has been replaced with something far better and something that is permanent. And that is exciting and a reason to rejoice for all who believe in Jesus Christ. So the next time you are reading through Leviticus, I pray, much like me, that you will have a newfound appreciation for this book. And you will also be relieved to know that all of the things that you're reading about are no longer required of you because Jesus fulfilled them all. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come before you this day, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word. And Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done. I thank you, Lord, as we look through this text and we saw the sinful actions of men. And Lord, we pray that we can learn from that of what not to do. But we also would be reminded of the fact that you call us to be holy. And we know that we cannot do that in and of ourselves. We can't just manufacture holiness. We have to become holy, Lord, by abiding in you and in each and every day and following the commands that you put forth in Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us the power to do so by your Holy Spirit. So we praise you for that. We thank you, Lord, for the, entire, the entirety of, of your Bible, Lord, all 66 books that we know that are inspired, that from each book, Lord, we can learn and glean something from it that we can use in our own lives and that we can apply to ourselves. So thank you for that. And I ask, oh God, that you would just be with us now as we go forth from here. I pray, oh God, that we would just be fully consecrated onto you, that we would just devote our hearts to you in all the things that we do and the way that we think and the way that we act. And I pray that through all things, Lord, that we would bring you glory. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.